Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Welcome, hip historians, uh, to another special episode, aren't they all, with our esteemed guest, Luke Pepera, who is going to shed some light on the vast open space of history that is uh, the continent of Africa. And Luke is of Ghanaian descent. He uh, read archaeology and anthropology in Oxford, so very well qualified to talk on the 500,000 years of history. I don't think I've gone back that far yet, so this will <laughs> definitely be the first. Um, and not to be too cliched, but you know, certainly, obviously, there was a driver behind writing this book. What mm-hmm. got you set off on, on the road to do this project? Well, first, thank you so much for that very uh, lovely introduction, uh, 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 Derek. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, honestly. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So what actually sort of got me started was um, about 12 years ago, I, I made a visit to the National Museum of, of Ghana. And, you know, because like you said, I'd, uh, you know, although I'd studied in the UK and I'm, and I'm living here um, currently, having been born in Ghana, I also spent the first eight years of my life there. And I went to school there as well for the first eight years. Um, and even though we were also coming to school here after that, so that when I say we, it's my, my, myself and my brother, my sister, we uh, always went back to Ghana uh, with my father during the major holidays, especially Christmas or summer. And um, my father and especially my, my grandparents and particularly those on my father's side have always been deeply rooted and are deeply rooted in Ghana um, and in Ghanaian culture and in the cultures of my people. So the Ashanti from my paternal grandmother's side um, and a group called the Kweru from my paternal grandfather's uh, side. So, you know, we'd always been connected to it. And whenever we went back, and, you know, here we have mostly when we're talking about African peoples or the history of African peoples, we're usually discussing it, you know, in respect to um, or in light of the trade in enslaved Africans, so the, the transatlantic slave trade and more colonialism. But whenever I went back to Ghana, I was having discussions about the deeper African past and, you know, especially to do with my people, the Ashanti and the Kweru. It was something that was always part of, of, of the atmosphere you know, of my family and, and of being back in Ghana. And um, I remember one time, we, basically it was like one time we were, I was speaking to my, my dad about it you know, over dinner and I said that I was interested, having always been interested in history and mythology and that kind of thing, saying that I was interested in learning a bit more about those aspects of, of my people, especially the Ashanti. He suggested that one of the things that we might do is go visit the, uh, the National Museum of Ghana, that there'll be some stuff there because the Ashanti were a major power from about the 17th until the early 20th centuries, renowned for their, you know, uh, uh, you know goldsmith thing in particular but they have tons of like regalia and and you know weaponry they had a really um sort of expansive and profoundly sophisticated military um and like military complex so they those weaponry and you know titles and flags and shields and all that type of stuff as well and when we went to the museum we found that there were quite a lot of slavery and colonial era artifacts 
Um, so that was a bit of a mystery for why they were there, even though the history was so rich. And I still had questions after see, after going to the museum and seeing that a lot of the material I was expecting to find wasn't there in favor of stuff that I was to do with the histories that I was hearing of more when I was in the, in the UK. So then I got in touch with a couple of professors at the University of Ghana and one of them, an archaeology professor, who told me a bit about the older history of peoples who'd inhabited what is now Ghana and also showed me even in a, in a small museum um, at the back of the archaeology department, evidence of ironworking, like, you know, furnaces and, 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 and implements and tools from dating to the 6th century AD that had been found in Ghana. Um, so I was starting to get a flavor of there being a you know much deeper past and there being evidence and there being things that I wanted to to talk about. Um, so it was that that prompted me even to study archaeology and anthropology to gain even access to this deeper past. And whilst I was studying, I did a, a module which was called the formation of sub-Saharan African states. Um, so that was literally talking about, you know, how some of these, uh, how how in the ancient medieval era, there were, you know, there were states and there were empires in Africa um, that were operating in, you know, much the same way. And even in, in some instances, in a more sophisticated way than those from other, tons of other parts of the world. And there I learned about even more states and empires and, and societies. I learned about Great Zimbabwe and the, stone, the medieval stone cities of um, of East Africa, of the Swahili coast, and their trade since the first century AD with uh, sort of ancient and medieval Iran and Arabia and Yemen, um, India and China, and about the medieval uh, empires of, of the Sahel and Western Africa, of Mali and of Songhai, and of all of these places. And I was like, okay, wow, there's so much material there that I would love to share with people. And that's what prompted me for when I left university to start writing about um, Africa, you know, African history and African mythology, just to give people an insight into the fact that, you know, there's a lot more that we don't cover, that we that we don't talk about, that is accessible, even though a lot of it is, is sort of, you know, lost to the sounds of time, but that we need to put, especially the last 500 years in a, in a, in a massive context, you know, it's not like we don't talk about it, but we've got to recognize that it is the tail end of a much deeper history. Um, so that is how I got onto it. It's amazing because you, you just don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm I'm from Ireland. You know, mm. I, I, okay, we've had our colonial thing, whatever. You know, with things, I think I think everyone's been colonized at some stage anyway by whoever the English were colonized by other Europeans uh, and all exactly. that kind of thing. You just I just don't think you know. You got histories from all these other parts of the world. And my my interest started out in more modern times as a kid, and it's been gradually peeling back as as time has mm. gone on. You know, reading up books and okay, what's what's next? And you know. The the most I know really about, about Africa was, you know, you go back to Carthage and, and Rome, but that's of European origin again. And mm. maybe is it because that was written history, perhaps, was maybe the tradition of, of more oral? I mean, a lot of Irish history was oral. It was passed mm. down through song. Was it maybe that that got suppressed during colonial times and that's where it got lost along the way? Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a really great point. I think it's that history is a discipline, it's an academic discipline, and then you know the academia are also influencing how popular historians who study it have gone on to write history is quite biased towards the written, um, and that is very much in the vein of the Western tradition that basically history is 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 the written is what's is written documents. That's 
it's from those that you draw history. Um, and that basically defines the discipline of history, at least especially in modern times. That's why Hugh Trevor Roper, that, you know, the professor of Oxford can say Africa has no history. He wasn't saying that nothing happened in Africa. He was saying that we can't write about it because there are no written documents, you know, going back that far. So therefore it has no history in the sense of it having no written documents from which we can draw stories and information. So that was his point. But, you know, I think we do need to look at history in a much broader sense anyway. And I think even broader than that definition to include as a lot of historians do when they write archaeology and uh, mythology, folklore, um, songs, stories, dances, masks, rituals, all that type of stuff counts as forming part of the people who they are today, but also who they have been, where they come from, and how they link to to their ancestors, essentially. Um, so, and, you know, as even the reason, I mean, that's why I elected even, for example, to study, or at least I was fortunate, at least, that I studied archaeology and anthropology as opposed to history because that's what allows me to access African history in particular, the history of so many African cultures, especially the further back you go, there are not that many written documents. Um, so even though there, even though there is writing in some of them, for example, in the kingdom of Kush, which existed from about 5,000 BC to 350 AD, and that's now in what's uh, Sudan, they have a written language dating to at least the 9th century BC called Mariotic, a script which still hasn't been deciphered. So that that's part of the reason that so there were written forms in a lot of places in Africa, but part of it has been uh, you know lack of interest or lack of funding in you know in discovering them and in talking about them and all that type of stuff. But yeah, I think all of that should be included. And even my own research, you know, I also talk about and you know belief systems and rituals and how that all forms the history, i.e., the past of a people, what it can tell them about, what it can tell us about them, um, and about ourselves today as well. So for historians, this must be like gold because I mean, like, many books can you write about World War II or, or whatnot? Yeah. I mean, this is really going into history, the, the undiscovered past. I mean, because we've pretty much done everything else. So tell us, how did you actually go after the pieces of evidence? You know, what were the breadcrumbs right. that, that led you to these stories? Yeah. So, I mean, it began really with material culture, I'd say, archaeology. I mean, you find it's like when you find pieces of Chinese bowls dating to the 13th and 14th centuries in the middle of Zimbabwe, then that's when archaeologists are like, well, that, how, like how, like what was what was going on, um, you know, which you do. Or even, you know, you find um, beads from India in Nigeria dating to the 11th century. So it was, you know, you, you start to build a picture actually of, the, of, of, of what these societies in Africa were doing and how connected they were to other parts of the world and actually the sophisticated trade links, et cetera, that, that existed there. Archaeology has been really important. Oral history, and I think taking oral history seriously, this pertains more, I guess, to when you're talking about um individuals so obviously each culture has their um their founder individuals their heroes as it were you know their mythic heroes um and africa has tons of these and the stories of them are usually passed down orally um even for example in west africa there's a whole uh, in what's now senegal the gambia mali um, among other places there's a whole tradition and, and there are other places in africa too other african cultures of a class of uh, oral historians whose whose job is literally just to remember, keep and pass down the histories of certain people in those places of West Africa that I mentioned, um, the around Senegal, Gambia, basically they have a series of epics, like oral epics that talk about um, the heroes of the empires of those places, of the empires of Mali, of Ghana, of Songhe as well. 
Um, so, for example, they have an epic called the Epic of Sundiata Keita. And this is an orally passed down epic, you know, a song that these historians learn. They're called griots, these sort of storyteller historians learn, um, which talks about his founding of the Empire of Mali, for instance, you know, his childhood. So that's one way to access the past. Um, but I would say those were the two, those were for me the two starting points. I'm a big, I'm a lover of character, but also I I, I like, you know, overturning the the perceptions that we have of especially the ancient and medieval was i mean a lot of people think globalization for example is a new phenomenon um in terms of the connections that we have between different places different countries or different nations as they are today different civilizations um you know i'm thinking to myself i've been reading this stuff as actually it's been going on for, for millennia that you have these kinds of connections and so you know that kind bringing up bringing to the fore that kind of history as well to overturn people's perceptions, not just about Africa and Africa being connected to loads of places, but the world itself. Um, and then also looking at oral history to draw out some of the stories of the individuals who can then form, you know, who can be our heroes in the same way that, you know, in, um, you know, in Western Europe, they have, uh, you know, you have like a Churchill or, um, you know, Nelson or whoever in, in, the, in, in Britain, for example, because this, it's interesting that the stories are kind of told in the same, in actually the same way. Um, you know, there's a lot of myth making about some of the, you know, some of the figures um, of British history in a similar way. There's a lot of myth making about um, some of those in the history of different places in Africa, but all of which is fused with grains of truth as well, or sometimes with whole strands of truth. So those were, yeah, those were a couple of the ways that I went about accessing and trying to tell stories of that past. Nante, I'm supposed to make it a little bit personal to you. I mean, share with our, our listeners a little bit of, of the Ashanta and Kula culture. Um, like what, what kind of stories or, or mythic heroes did you come to England with when, as that eight-year-old boy? Was there, were there any characters uh, that you came over with? Yeah, so there's one who is now more myth probably than, than history, even though he could have been and, and was a likely historical figure. He's uh, an Ashanti, um, particularly Ashanti, but trickster god called Anansi, and he's a god of storytelling and wisdom. And he's he's sort of like a folklore figure, but he's you know he's someone who's uh, always trying to subvert authority, especially of his father, who's the sky god Niame. Um, and stories about him are told, you know, children parents tell them to children, and children tell them, you know, to each other, mainly as a form of um, of, of entertainment and also for uh, teaching morals as well. Um, so Nancy, so he was he was one that I knew from childhood. Um, but then there is also one I didn't know, actually, you know, when I, you know, sort of in my early days or, you know, when I was younger, um, who's definitely is a historical figure, um, even though there are aspects of mythology, um, you know, that uh, when people are telling the story about him is uh, Osei Tutu, who was the founder of the Ashanti Empire in the 17th century. And, you know, historically, he did. Uh, defeat one of the the premier region in that in that part of Africa that you know comprises now Ghana and you know Ghana especially the Denchira Kingdom and um, which was a powerful kingdom there and you know which had you know had trade deals with European powers especially the Portuguese and Dutch and you know managed to reform its military and had access to guns and all that type of stuff and Ose Tutu unites uh, several other kingdoms in the region to defeat the Denchira, and then he forms the the uh, the gold. Uh, he forms the Ashanti Empire, um, of which the main symbol, even to today now, is is the golden stool, which was um, essentially the uh, it's a it's an Ashanti throne essentially, which his companion and advisor, um, priest Anoche or Akomfo Anoche, 
called down from the heavens. So that's like the aspect of mythology. So he calls it down from the heavens and he makes the kings of all the other kingdoms give up their regalia and they pledge their allegiance to Usetutu. And that is the founding of the Ashanti Empire. So again, it's like history with a, you know, with a little bit of mythology and myth-making. He's, he's recognized as being the founder of this very important empire and to the Ashanti is, um, yeah, founding, a founding heroic figure. Cool. I mean, what, what like a wealth of just real fun characters there. And, you know, and I'm sure you can make many a movie from, uh, from all the stories there. Totally. Uh, yeah. Incredible stuff. And I suppose, and, and at what point then did the Ashanti meet colonial Britain? What date is that? Um, so that's the late, that's the late 19th century. So, okay. I mean, this is the thing, this is the thing, it's, it's interesting because it's, 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 a, it's, you know, it's from about maybe 1870 onwards. It's very late, especially British colonial ambition threatens the Ashanti, but, you know, the British have been there since the 16th century, but it's been a more or less equal trade partnership. Um, until the later days of the 19th century, where in general European and then also British colonial ambition has sort of been ramped up in the era of the scramble for Africa, essentially, and wanting to access, you know, the resources there. Um, but, you know, that's again fairly, you know, late on. And then there are a series of wars between the, the British and the British and the Ashanti, culminating uh, with the War of the Golden Stool. Which is round about it's round about 1900, um, and that's where the uh, the warrior queen Yasantiwasp is another heroic figure as well, um, and queen mother who resists the British. She ends up, you know, she ends up losing the war. She wins a few battles, but she ends up losing the war and being exiled. Um, but she's renowned for at least having stood up to the British. Um, so another heroic figure. But yes, it's it's, it's relatively late on, um, sort of yeah, mid to mid to late 19th century that there are those tensions. But quite quite recent history then to obviously yeah. you're, you're coming from, from Ghana to Britain with all this knowledge as well, or your family certainly has. It's been difficult sitting in class, learning about King Henry and, and you know the eighth and whatnot, and with all these characters left there behind in Ghana and, and you not being able to to touch them except for when you go home, having to learn a quite a quite an alien history of it probably was, was it? Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, I, I mean, I enjoyed that. The thing is, I love yeah. all kinds of history anyway. I think the Henry VIII specifically actually should should be taught, but I think we focus on the wrong thing. I think because it's you know the wives aspect is more interesting than the fact that he um, reformed you know religion in this country, for example. Yeah, like it's the only yeah. place in the world. You know, he was actually one can argue about whether or not he did for the for the right reasons. If you want to understand an important aspect of Britishness and an important aspect of um, even um, Americanness to a certain extent, because there's a lot of Protestants who, you know, went over, then you have to sort of understand Church of England Protestantism, but it's not really the sexiest uh, a topic unless you're really interested <laughs> in history, you know, the sort of the marrying the sex and the marrying and the killing of wives is the thing that we tend to concentrate on, which is why I think Henry VIII is so, like, looms so large. But, you know, I think, I mean, for me as a Ghanaian, you know, I went to a school which was made up mostly obviously of English students. I, I sort of I sort of understood why um the history of of England uh, specifically um was um emphasized. I think obviously I also did things like the Russian Revolution again, which I love because I love all history. I think one thing that would have been good maybe is to learn about the history of other of other continents. So you have yes the English history 
if it is about teaching people here, that should form a you know a, a fairly decent chunk of the curriculum, especially when you're talking about things like Henry, like the Reformation in particular, maybe like Wars of the I don't know, even Wars of the Roses. I was kind of like, how does that sort of is that relevant today? But there are certain aspects like William the Conqueror definitely should be taught because that informs you know a lot of the aspects of British culture from the heraldry, etc., come from you know France, come from you know the French because of that conquest, you know, Battle of Hastings. That stuff should def- I feel should definitely be taught. But I think you should also teach things about Asia, Africa. And, you know, in the same way that we learned about the Russian Revolution, you should just choose like, you know, there should be one element, an important element. I mean, again, choosing that is 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 would be, you know, I don't envy the person who would have that task of choosing the one. But, you know, and that's just because, you know, our world, like I said, has always been, but especially is becoming more and more connected. Um, and, you know, these other places who have an incredibly rich history are going to be more important on the world stage than a lot of the other, and most of the nations of, of Western Europe in particular. So it is just important to understand, you know, the richness and have a respect for the richness of these other of these other places. Because then when you encounter somebody from there, and you know, as you inevitably will, then you, you understand them a little bit more. Whereas, you know, if you're just if you're just doing, you know, these aspects of, of whichever history of English history or whatever, it limits your scope. It doesn't make you as open-minded as you should be. But you know, so that I think that was that was where, at least reflecting upon it, let's say at the time, I didn't think about it too much because I can I always had that connection going back to garden. I think it was enough. It was just enough. But definitely reflecting upon it. I was like, well, you know, you just don't get a sense of the richness of other people's pasts as well. I mean, I think that's really important for, you know, for, for properly educating children because that reflects the reality of the world. I, I think, yeah, we're, we're at a point where history could get lost unless it's almost enforced on educational systems to put stuff like this in because mm. the, the importance perhaps of, of nationalistic history is kind of maybe gets shoveled off to the side because most of us are very multicultural. I mean, Ireland really was just full of panties for the most part for you know, <laughs> most, most, of, most of history, you know, of our English come over. But you know, our, our culture has changed mm. so much, you know, in the last 20 years, 20, 30 years in particular. Globalisation, whatever about it, the goods or the bads or any of that kind of stuff. But it, it is, it, it's, it's all our history. So you know, we, we should be getting with it we should be understanding like you say you know where we all come from and and the importance of the fact Mm. that we do have these histories but they don't define borders as such it's just that isn't it amazing that we have all these histories from all these stories from all over Mm. the world Mm. and we need to preserve them in some way they need to be continuously told as as stories and made fresh and interesting for for you like my kids are you know my my youngest is coming up to 12 another guy's Mm. 13 i've kind of instilled a bit of history into it, but they love all that stuff outside of it. Mm-hmm. That whole thing, you start going more far in the field, they're like, wow, really? Because it's mm-hmm. it's really new and exciting for them. Um, and I'm not sure that's really been done. You you might be no. turning the page on that, perhaps, if you, uh, if you can't listen yeah. to it, eh? uh, or have some influence there. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's even like you're mentioning with Irish history, with the oral history. I mean, that's something that, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I mean, even it's like up until you mentioned, it's like, okay, wow, that's an oral historical tradition. But, you know, the mythology, then the folklore, you know, I have Irish friends and when they're telling me, you know, about banshees and like, just it's just like there's such a richness to that history. And that was something that, you know, even if it was just like the history of the British Isles, but then you were also considering the important things that were happening in Wales, Scotland and, and, and Ireland. That just means that when an English person meets one of these people, they just have that recognition, recognition that, oh yes, they also have a really rich past. I think it's, 
it's a really important part of instilling in people an understanding of the humanity of other peoples that, you know, they aren't just, and I think it's something that's been really detrimental to Africans in particular with the current narrative of history that it focuses on the trade in, in you know, in, in enslaved Africans and the transatlantic trade and also in colonialism is that, you know, for a lot of people, Africans are seen as victims, essentially, just and only as victims. That's the, that's the issue. So there's a lot of even, you know, even with the sort of well-meaning, um, you know, kind of, you know, activist crowd, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, patronizing behavior and there's a lot of, you know, just because the viewpoint is that, you know, even from their aspect is that Africans are, uh, you know, are vict are lesser, therefore they must be helped. And then for the other side, for the, the quote unquote, it's like, you know, the, the, the quote unquote more racist side, it's like Africans are lesser, therefore they can't be treated in a certain way. And all of that feeds, whereas if people knew, in my opinion, about, you know, the, the civilizations, you know, in the history and the truth of a lot of the African past and were able to put that recent history in context. I mean, it could be, maybe it's naive, but I, I just feel that, you know, it, it, it would, you know, it would help people understand you know the depth and the and the richness and also the humanity of, of these people rather than seeing them as either uh, victims um and only as victims and you know as sort of you know people who who've only who've who've consistently had a victimhood status and are therefore there's something inherently lesser about them or even on the other side to be honest as people who've, who've only done good things as if africa was this wonderland until um, you know, European, you know, European, you know, invasion and that, you know, Europeans sort of took advantage of the peace loving, you know, it's kind of like a, an HG Wells time machine type thing, where like the Europeans are the Morlocks and and, and the Africans are the Uloi and they're, and they're just sort of naive and eating fruit and just like being taken over when it's like, actually, no, there was a lot of agency there, you know, that they African kings, kings and kingdoms were fighting, you know, in the same way that they were doing it in all the rest of the world. There was imperial ambition, you know, there were people fighting, there were sophisticated militaries, you know, there was enslavement, albeit very different from the chattel slavery of the, uh, you know, of the Americas, there was the slave trade of the East, there was expansion, you know, there was warfare, um, but there was also, you know, art, artistic and, you know, an architectural achievement. You know, we had our Alexander the Great, and so we had our, you know, we had our poets and we had our this or the, you know, this, that and the other. So, you know, we were human like anybody else. Like, we, you know, we were doing and doing, you know, human societies, human societies operating the way that others were. Um, but I think people when you focus so much on the transatlantic slave trade, whether you're, whether it's because you're trying to demonstrate to people the scale of, of a tragedy, or sorry, even if it's just because you're trying to demonstrate that, it, I think it ends up having a slightly counterintuitive effect, if, it, if that's all you talk about. Um, and that was also a huge emotional impetus for wanting to write uh, uh, my book, Motherland, as well. That's interesting. Reversing the disempowerment and, and putting it back into just education now. And, and, and so it's reveling the glories of your, your own uh, you know, rich tribe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, to say that there are glories, yeah, as well as dark aspects, you know. Yeah, well, that's it. Well, unfortunately, the human history is dark. You yeah. know, it's just where we're incredibly violent. And, and most of, you know, you could say the, the whole colonial gig was really down to a quirk of faith, kind of developed new and wonderful ways of using gunpowder. We want to enter into a world that's not so defined by the weaponry that we, uh, that, that, mm-hmm. that we use. And uh, we're all, yeah, we're all living together in the same thing now. And I think it's an amazing thing that you've done. And I, I, I do, I am kind of surprised it hasn't been done and I you know it was only when mm. I, I I saw it and, and just for our listeners actually um, Motherland is is the title of the book mm. and it's going on general release this October is that right? Oh, general, yeah so that's been um that's been revised so it's going to be uh sort of middle, middle of next year 
Um, okay. So it's coming okay. in 2024, yeah, early to middle okay. of next year. So definitely look out, yeah, for it on on that. In the in the meantime, if you don't mind uh, a slightly shameless plug, I'm actually um, yeah. uh, partaking in a in a documentary. I've contributed to a documentary that's dropping on Netflix tomorrow. And oh wow! I think list, the reason I mention is because I think your listeners might also be interested in it. Is that um, it tells the story of um, a 17th century African queen, Nzinga, and about her resistance of the Portuguese. But it also details a lot of the richness of her culture, the Mbundu culture of um, of uh, what's now Angola. But then it was the kingdom of Indongo, which is which existed in northern Angola, um, of which she was the uh, a princess and then uh, became the queen as well. Um, and her story is is pretty remarkable. What she had to go through and and what she what she did to um, sort of stem Portuguese expansion, you know, expansionist ambition in in West Central Africa. Um, so that's coming out on Netflix, yeah, tomorrow. Um, excellent, so, excellent. Yeah, so even if, if you're interested, and, and, and you do appear as well. His, uh, I do as so well, right? Yes, yeah, and I, I did, yes, I, I, yeah, I've done a couple of things for History Eater for their, uh, for their podcast series, The Ancients, as well, and also I did um, a documentary called Africa Written Out of History, which talks about, okay. um, which talks about essentially, you know, it's like that main, the main point of my book is that why is it that we don't talk about, or, you know, put the recent history in context, and we don't talk about all of this other material that's there. Um, but yeah, so yeah, if, if any of listeners interested and yourself interested in those, definitely keep an eye out for that. But, it, do, uh, it does appear yeah. though, Luke, that that doors are opening for you, right? Like you, you really put this front and center. And I, I think this might be the first of a, a string of possible documentaries and, and stories, you think? Oh, the, yeah, that's very kind. And uh, I mean, hopefully so. When different is, I'll definitely be uh, interested in coming on the historians again to uh, you know, to talk about with yourself and also to yeah, to share information about that with your listeners. But it's interesting because that relates to what you'd said, you know, before about, you know, this not being done. And it's true. And I think and I actually I mean, I think part of it, I wonder, is is maybe because actually of um, like like we were talking about earlier, the discipline of history, a lot of even the African descent historians who, you know, historians who write it, they've studied, usually if they've studied history, again, the written documents, your bias is going to be towards what happened later on, and especially the colonial era, because there are the slavery in the colonial era, because there are tons of written documents, um, because that's when the Europeans really get involved in Africa. So the written material there is, is, is huge, you know, and especially in European languages, because most of the prior written documentation is written in Arabic, you know, for the most part, up until the 15th century, 16th century. So, which is again, relatively late. That's why, I think that's why partly so much of the focus on the last 500 years. I think having studied archeology span and anthropology, I was well placed to come in and say, well, there's a lot more which we can talk about and which I, I sort of had studied how to study as it were, because I was approaching things through an archaeological and anthropological lens rather than a historical lens. So there was, you know, I, I, I sort of knew how to tell um, tell stories about, you know, the material culture and, you know, the anthropology um, and looking beyond, you know, looking beyond the written the written material, which a lot of other even African descent historians who 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 you know write who write history and write about history, um, if they've studied history, they tend to focus on the areas that has the mo- have the most written documentation. Um, so there's that. I also think that slavery is um it's obviously the much more emotive topic, and it's not something again that I you know that I shy away from. Even in motherland, you know, I talk about slavery, I talk about race, but again, it's always about trying to put it in context. So, for example, I think in most people's minds, how the slave trade 
you know, sort of began or operated is that, you know, certain Europeans had this kind of, uh, you know, grand master plan to enslave particularly in African labor to use them, you know, on the plantation because they had ideas that African was, Africans were lesser or better workers wherever it is. And, you know, and, and also the fact that, you know, as soon as Europeans reached Africa, there was, you know, that destruct, you know, what we saw in the 19th century when actually that was a process. So, for example, in my research, what, you know, when I'm writing about it, I'm saying that, um, you know, actually, if you look at the relationship between Europe and, and Africa for centuries, literally for centuries from, you know, the 15th century up until the 19th century, mid 19th or, I mean, even possibly earlier in some places, early in some places, but for the most part, it was an equal trade relationship. You know, and you see, you know, with some European powers, you know, that kind of ambition, the colonial ambition, you know, increasing, you know, especially as the, especially as the plantation economies are developing in the Americas because they need a workforce. So that's it's to it's to feed their plantations in, in the Americas that, you know, they have, there's a greater demand for for workers. And then that leads to them wanting to conquer more places so that they can gain more, you know, supply of more workers, etc. So that's that's why I began. But. You know, for for a century, two centuries, in some places, you know, three centuries, it's an equal trade relationship between African states and European merchants. You know, so in European, you know, uh, yeah, European merchants from different places. You know, that's how it operates. But and and that's sort of putting in context then how the how the slave trade and also how colonialism got started, and trying to put into context the way in which Africans were viewed then, uh, you know, and now because for you know for because the idea, you know, even the idea of um, uh, you know, racism as defined by African inherent inferiority didn't come into play until the 18th and 19th centuries. It's like relatively late in our history. Like yeah. ideologically, that's what people, you know, and, and just becoming mainstream as well. There was, there was for the most part, you know, amongst you know, the majority of people, no sense that Africans were inherently inferior just because there was they were African. And that's not an ideology that fueled for example, the transatlantic slave trade. You know, as they say, it was just business. It was just yeah. business for the most yeah. part. So putting that into context as well, um, trying to really nail down where some of our ideas and ideologies come from, um, you know, what the true histories of maybe some of you know, the development of some of these aspects of the human condition are, that's also what I try to write about. So, um, you know, uh, even though it tackles slavery and colonialism, it's trying to come at it from a different angle. And it's all about trying to put things in context and all about trying to undermine this narrative and this idea of Africans perpetually and having having always been victims and you know losers and and you know out from from especially uh, you know from these contacts of different cultures and it's obviously coming from a colonial or western perspective that's done this it fed a need i suppose at the time perhaps but mm. I, it's like you just change the word slightly the, the narrative like you've done there and all of a sudden you know the, the entire history of a continent looks completely different you know yeah. and it's not it's not that difficult but it has to be put into syllabus it has to be taught in schools mm -hmm. and then uh, the store the stories change and then we start getting lots of movies about the ashanti uh, kings yeah everything changes everything changes so it's a really good hats off to you i mean you're living the dream doing i suppose but as, as a young boy you, you know you, you really wanted to discover more about your heritage you've mm -hmm. obviously done this through motherland you're bringing it now to uh to the masses so um yeah that's a, that's that's an incredible achievement thank you that's very kind eric thank you so much but uh, that's fantastic yeah. well thank you so much for your time and um, we'd love to have you back again so hopefully we'll, we'll stay in touch and uh, i will be buying my copy of motherland as soon as it does become available and uh, i'll be uh, looking at netflix tomorrow so uh, thank you very much and uh, good night luke Papera. thank you so much for having me good night thank you that was a fascinating 
episode and I really just didn't realise um, that the history was so different, especially when we talk about the slave trade and, and, and the fact that, you know, I suppose, take the word slave out and uh, put in trade, you know, that, that, that's what I got uh, from speaking with Luke there and that we're all trading partners and, and essentially, you know, slavery came into it because of a need for uh, labour. And we can see this playing out in all various different ways in modern uh, society and capitalism today. So not all that different a couple of hundred years ago. But there's so many stories um, that you know obviously live in this big continent, you know, the birthplace of mankind and whatnot, and, and how we haven't come across these or they, they just haven't been shared with us in the way that uh, Luke has uh, investigated and, and, and tells us now. It's a bit of a shame, but, you know, it's, it's kind of cool as well, because as far as history goes, uh, we're always looking for um, new stories, new insights and uh, new things that haven't been discovered yet. And uh, that's great to know. Now I've got a, a whole other continent and uh, quite a bit of history to go and explore in the future and maybe we'll have some other guests writing similar books later on the show so thank you very much everyone for joining us and we shall see you again soon if you would like to make a small donation of uh, less than the price of a coffee even then you can uh, certainly on Acast there is an option to do this um, and uh, any sort of contribution all will help to keep this show on the road as they say thank you good night thinking of renovating or extending your home this year perhaps something a little smaller new bathroom new kitchen help with soft furnishings will look no further than nine yards design interior design studio Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want to help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture, through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects, from one room to a full redevelopment, and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at 9yardsdesign.ie.